0: My maternal grandfather was an electrician, union. My aunt was a teacher, union. My dad was a college professor, state colleges, union. My dad, one year from my birthday, right after I started playing guitar, gave me a book called Carry It On, a history in song and pictures of America's working men and women by Bob Reiser and Pete Seeger. Signed by Pete Seeger. So, I grew up, like many 20th century children of the labor movement, to understand that organized labor developed in reaction to incredibly harsh and inhumane working conditions of the Industrial Revolution. I knew before they taught me in school that we have unions to thank for the concept of the weekend, the eight-hour workday, child labor laws, lunch breaks, and vacations. I've personally benefited from collective bargaining agreements. As a child I grew up with asthma and allergies very severe, had a lot of medical intervention and my dad's union job at the State College had for its time a very good health insurance plan. Later as the child of a State College professor I attended a State College tuition free to which For which I'm still deeply grateful. I remember faculty gatherings, and I remember my grandfather taking me along for coffee and donuts, in my case, milk and donuts, when he went to chat with other nearby local electricians. I was too young to remember the details of the conversation, but I remember the other guys came in their electrician vans and trucks, and that they talked a lot about what I would later understand, if I had been able to understand it so well, union matters. I learned from my growing up not to take health and health care and education and access to it, and the community created by a common interest for granted. We arrive at Labor Day once again this year, a holiday created to celebrate workers and the labor movement, amid the continuing decline and influence of the labor movement in our country. With our theme of community this month, I wanted to explore if there was some connection between this decline of the labor movement and community life. I think there is. I found a lot of correlations between the decline in the labor movement and our current social, political, and cultural situation. I don't think anything could be said to be a causation, but I think the wide variety of the correlations are fascinating. Last year, a New York Times columnist named Nicholas Kristoff noted that a construction worker today makes $10,000 less than one did in 1973 per year. And that's adjusted for inflation and the relative value of the dollar then and now. 10,000 less. Union membership in America was at its height in the 1940s and 50s, and this correlates with the largest peacetime expanse of our economy. At that time, more than one-third of the American labor force was unionized. Two years ago, Time Magazine reported that union membership in America was at a 97-year low of 11% of the workforce. By contrast, Denmark's workforce is 54% union, and virtually all of Sweden's workers are covered by some type of collective bargaining agreement. Through the 1980s, increases in wages and productivity had an interesting correlation If you look at a graph of income inequality, union membership, and wages, the income inequality has a vast separation. It's very great at the start of the labor movement in the late 19th century. And the percent of people in labor were very low. And then as the labor movement gained strength, those evened out. Income inequality got smaller, membership in unions got bigger. And then since the 1960s, we've been going like this. And they're getting greater again. Wages, in a sense, have stagnated, but profits still increase, and so does compensation for executives. That same Time article reported that in the 1960s, American executives earned on average 20 times that of workers. And that in 2013, it was 296 times that of workers. people will cite various reasons for the decline in labor in our country. One is that many of the things that organized labor once fought for became victories, and now they're not demanded by labor unions so much as they're covered by government and law. Things like workplace safety and OSHA laws, a federal minimum wage, which does need to be higher, but we have a law, and overtime pay, all now legislated. And these were things for which unions had to bargain in the workplace at one time. There's been a change in manufacturing coupled with international free trade agreements such as NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership where these things allow capital and profits to move freely across borders but workers and workers' rights and protections do not. There's been an increase in isolationism and xenophobia in both Europe and America. There's been, since the Taft-Hartley Act, an increase in many places of what's called the right-to-work laws. And on the surface, they seem like a fair option. You can't be required to join a union in a certain factory or business and trade. But that right-to-work also carries along with it a lack of due process and fair treatment that collective bargaining tends to put in place, so the right to work is in many cases a right to be fired law. It's an amazing trick, I think, in our culture to get people to work against and even vote against their own self-interest, but maybe that's a result of our constant focus on the bottom line. There's been an aggressive, if not overt, movement to weaken unions by propaganda and PR campaigns to stigmatize them, even blame them for some economic ills. And there's been an effort through this to set working people one against another, pitting those with good union benefits against other workers without them and claiming that those with the good benefits are some of the cause of the lack of good wages and benefits among the other workers. And that's the first way weaker unions are created, and it's the way the tactic works, is to divide people against each other instead of bringing them together to work for their own better self-interest. Part of the effect of the union is we're all in this together. I got your back, and you got mine. As I got out of college and more into the working world, given the way I grew up, I was astounded that so many people believed unions were a bad thing. I know they're not perfect. I know they have their abuses and corruptions, like any big institution does. But these faults, I think, pale in comparison to the world of abuse and imbalance of power of the corporate marketplace that gave rise to the unions in the first place. I've been dismayed as an adult by the hostility, for example, against teachers and teacher union benefits. I heard stories and read the arguments against the state teachers when they negotiated contracts in the papers. This was back when everybody still read a printed newspaper. My ex-wife was a teacher in our early years of our marriage, and I remember when her teachers in that town renegotiated their union contract, the vitriol directed at them for daring to demand such increases in benefits as their health care. Instead of holding up the good union contracts as the way everyone should really be treated, we've let the argument be framed that those with good union bargaining agreements are somehow the cause of our ills, and they have it in an unfair way. As a UU minister, I'm really happy that we have an excellent range of agreements for our compensation and benefits. I'm glad that our faith practices the way the world should be and doesn't give in to the marketplace of the way things are. We are an example ourselves of how to do it right. I think union demise also is part of just a general change in culture. For example, when I was in high school... I remember in my American history class, we did a whole unit on the American labor movement. For kicks, I remember looking through my son's history textbook in Texas at his high school. Looked in the glossary for labor and found two entries, barely mentioned in passing, in two different sentences. Our culture has changed in the way we frame work and workers Some of the related issues, I think, that can be connected to the demise of the American labor movement include decrease in voting and political involvement. Voter turnout in presidential elections has gone steadily downhill since the earliest 20th century when it was at its highest of 70% of eligible voters. In the late 19th and early 20th century was the rise of the labor movement, And voter participation in national presidential elections was at its all-time high. It went downhill from there until the 50s at the height of the labor movement when it peaked up into 60% of eligible voters. And it's been going downhill ever since, although there are certain occasional spikes. Interestingly enough, 2008 and 1992 were big spikes in voter participation. A 2013 study in the magazine Social Forces conducted by scholars at UMass and University of California, Irvine, noted that union members were 18% more likely to vote in a presidential election, 43% more likely to volunteer for a campaign, and 93% more likely to participate in economic and social justice protests. When people are working two and three jobs to make ends meet, There's a lot less time to participate in civic involvements. We have an ongoing battle in our culture now over minimum wage laws, where the minimum wage is nowhere near a living wage. And yet, where unions are incredibly strong, the labor market actually adjusts for wages and makes them universally high and benefits universally high. For example, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Iceland have no minimum wage law because the workers in those countries are so heavily unionized that the wages for all workers are kept high across the board. A number of those countries even defeated recently referendums that would create a minimum wage law because so many workers already made more than the proposed minimum. Healthcare. Once a major benefit, we are now in a fight over healthcare. And wanting to try and find a way to make healthcare something that's available to everybody. Education. Higher union wages once provided the means to send children to college, but not so much anymore. Higher education is increasingly becoming out of the reach of the middle class. And so now we start to hear calls for universal public education being extended past high school to university. In community life, volunteering and participating in community organizations tends to decline across the board in our country. I wonder if that correlates somehow with union participation, rising the percent of people who vote in elections, and the people also who get involved in things in their community. I would love to learn more about the details behind those correlations. Current discussions in our culture about race and power and privilege and xenophobia and immigration and poverty and income inequality and access to basic human needs like housing, food, education, health care are all related. It seems to me the same forces that resist anti-oppression and anti-racism measures also resist education and health care for all and promote the corporate over the individual and the profit motive over the people motive we've been fed I think and taught a fantasy and unhealthy things about work and human value as we grapple with demise of the influence of the labor movement we might do better going forward realizing that America and the labor movement don't have the same relationship they once did that gave rise to so many things in our culture we once took for granted community, voting, involvement. We are an overworked and over-anxious population. We spend a lot of time making ends meet and less time enriching our hearts and spirits, getting to know our neighbors, and participating in civic and community life. No wonder there are so many issues that are contentious, dividing us and encouraging us not to listen to each other. Collectively, I think we've come to a place in our culture where we really don't value people and their work. We value ownership and profit. Calls for the dignity and worth of every person, regardless of what they produce, can sometimes be viewed by some people as a crazy idea. I think people have a right to food and housing and education and health care, even if they don't produce or help someone make a profit by their labor. We are approaching a time, quite possibly, when full employment isn't even going to be possible. And then, how do we judge people without a job, or people who work in the home? When we introduce ourselves in our culture, we introduce ourselves by, I'm Tony, I'm a minister. I don't say, I'm Tony, I like to play guitar. Fascinating, isn't it? What would be different if we were different like that? Valuing people for what they're about instead of what they do for work. Maybe we can break out of this matrix where we're unable to see the water we swim in and reframe work entirely. Think about it. There's a business report in the news, but there's not a labor report. Newspapers used to have business sections, but not labor sections. Even NPR has marketplace, but not labor market or workers' place. The system we live under has influenced our ability to see things in some ways. The corporate marketplace world we live in, in a sense, is like an imperial colonizer that takes over and determines the life of the colonized and establishes a way things are a new reality the colonized begin to speak the colonizer's language adopt the colonizer's customs and after a time forget that there was a different language and different customs and different values perhaps we need to take a step beyond just looking at labor and business And look at how we value work and humanity and being human. A human's being value is not how much they contribute to someone or some group making a profit. And I think inevitably, our culture has made a golden calf, an idol, a god, out of producing and profit. So many people work multiple jobs and we accept this as the way things are and we get mad at what union power is left when it asks for what seems like extraordinary benefits. And yet I would say that health care and cost of living increases and retirement plans and provisions are not extraordinary. They're what all of us deserve. And shouldn't the richest country in the history of the world be able to house and feed and educate and take care of the health of its people? For everyone. Why, how have we created a culture where these things are tied to one's employment? Our future, as people who live in this society, is going to be a lot different. There will be different work needing to be done. There will be more and more automation. The things people used to do for jobs will change I hope as we move into that future, we focus on people and not-profit. We pay more attention to what it actually means to respect the dignity and worth of each human person. With the demise of the influence and presence of the labor movement, I think we've lost a very powerful voice for social and economic justice. For labor unions were once the most powerful organizing efforts against such injustices. Perhaps the renewed and heated difficult national conversation we are having about race will help us further respect workers and once more again respect all people because it forces a discussion about assumptions, power, control, privilege and who benefits and profits and who doesn't from the way things are. Here in our congregation we are heirs to a very fascinating and historical situation The history of this congregation has occupied both extremes of the American labor market, from a socialist collective to a company town. On a weekend where we rest from work and honor labor, let us remember the dignity and worth not only of all people, but of all work and all labor. Let us remember that we are called to create a world and a community where people are valuable and lovable and worthy because of their humanity, not because of what they produce or contribute to the profit margin. Let us all be strengthened in our commitment to always be a voice in our community for putting people above profit.